Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we observe weird and wonderful science in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, you'll hear Frontiers of Science Forum speakers, who've been previously interviewed on the show, answering questions from the audience about biology, chemistry, physics and mathematics. But first up, here's news of a scandal at NASA of astronomic proportions. Are you now, or have you ever been, a telescope? The James Webb Space Telescope was launched recently. Astronomers are upset after current NASA Administrator Bill Nelson refused to rename a new orbital telescope that a NASA Administrator from 2002 had named after a NASA Administrator from 1961 to 1968, James Webb. Until this point around the world, telescopes were always named after astronomers. The astronomers aren't upset that James Webb wasn't a scientist, but because he was instrumental in systematically hunting down public servants who were gay or lesbian and publicly outing and firing them, in what is known historically as the Lavender Scare. The Lavender Scare happened at the same time as Senator Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare witch hunt of the US House Un-American Activities Committee, which was attacking anyone deemed to be a communist. NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe named the new telescope after James Webb in 2002 because he thought James Webb was a big achiever in the world of administration and policy, in bringing many diverse people together to achieve something big. James Webb had degrees in arts and law, served in the military, was undersecretary in the State Department, then an oil executive, and then appointed as administrator of NASA in 1961. James Webb oversaw NASA during the Apollo program and retired in 1968, before the successful moon landing in 1969. In 2015, sex and relationship advice columnist Dan Savage wrote an article titled Should NASA Name a Telescope After a Dead Guy Who Persecuted Gay People in the 1950s? There's been angry discussion in the astronomical community and online ever since. During both his time in the State Department and his time in NASA, people who worked under James Webb's direction were industrious in finding people who might be gay, interrogating them about their sexual history and thoughts for hours, outing them to the public and firing them. There were many suicides. Also in his time as Undersecretary in the US State Department, one of James Webb's accomplishments was to commit the United States to a program of psychological warfare, including in science and technology, as detailed in Audra Wolf's book, Freedom's Laboratory. There was a cold war to win. Early in 2021, over 1,200 people, mostly astronomers or astronomy enthusiasts, including scholars who want to use the new telescope for their own research, signed a petition 
urging NASA to rename the telescope because of James Webb's anti-gay policies. NASA's administration promised to have a proper and transparent investigation into the issue. In a letter with the petition, astronomers spoke about the persecution of a NASA employee, Clifford Norton, who was fired in 1963 while James Webb was directing the agency. Norton was arrested for gay activity, interrogated by the police, and then picked up by NASA's head of security and questioned at the agency for several hours overnight before being fired for immoral behaviour. The latest NASA administrator Bill Nelson has released a statement that he has found no evidence at this time that warrants changing the name of the James Webb Space Telescope. There is no report released of any investigation. Joanna Tesk, an astronomer at the Carnegie Institute for Science in Washington, D.C., said, Without knowing what factors were considered, it's hard for me to respect the decision to keep the current name. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, a cosmologist at the University of New Hampshire, said, I haven't seen evidence that Webb knew about this incident. But I think we have two options here. Either he was a wildly incompetent administrator and didn't know that his head of security was interrogating employees in NASA facilities, or he knew exactly what was going on and he was in some sense party to overseeing the interrogation of someone for being gay. Or, as Nature magazine writer Alexandra Witz said, if Webb deserves credit for landing astronauts on the moon, he deserves blame for a custom at the agency of firing gay employees during his tenure as administrator. In David Johnson's book, The Lavender Scare, he includes documents from President Truman's secretary recording a June 22, 1950 meeting with James Webb to discuss how they can work together on the homosexual investigation of the HOE committee to work out a modus operandi or policy and procedure. There's also a memorandum from the Assistant Secretary of State, Carlisle Hummelsign, from 24th of June 1950 to James Webb with suggestion for Webb's meeting with Senator Hoey about the work of the committee to inquire into the problem of homosexuals and moral perverts in the American federal government. These documents would seem to be the final nails in the coffin for those who claim that James Webb had nothing to do with government and NASA policies against gay employees. The hashtag for the discussion on Twitter is hash rename JWST. Astronomers are discussing what to do in the wake of NASA's refusal to change the name or even release a report. Some are suggesting that every scientific paper and website where they mention data from this telescope should have a history section explaining the harm caused by James Webb against gay people. Others are talking about repurposing the initials JWST from James Webb Space Telescope to the just wonderful Space Telescope. This is against a context where the conservative US state governments are attacking the rights of LGBTQ plus people and the current NASA administration itself has bad form. A handful of managers at the Goddard Space Flight Center came up with a clever way to include people's chosen names and pronouns in electronic communication, including email, contact lists, instant messaging, and Microsoft Teams. The innovation was without any extra cost, extra coding, or loss of function. After consulting with NASA headquarters, as well as legal departments and employee resource groups, they set up a trial, where a pre-existing optional field assigned to nicknames 
could be used by employees to add pronouns after their names. It was used for this purpose by over a hundred employees. It was labelled a pilot project, with hints it might be expanded to all of NASA. After a month or so, participants were called to a meeting with the Deputy Administrator of NASA and Goddard Center's Director on the use of IT systems for gender pronouns, as if that was against the rules. The pilot program was over, with no possibility of discussion. The reasons? It wasn't implemented with approval by proper personnel. And it's not what IT systems were designed for. And it's a frivolous use of resources, like putting your sports team next to your own name. What does it matter what the IT system was designed for if this use of the nickname field doesn't break or hurt anything? The Just Wonderful Space Telescope is a wonder of engineering that will allow observations never possible before in the infrared wavelengths of light. The telescope was sent into orbit with a mirror of connected pieces that unfolded like origami. The telescope aims to let astronomers look back over billions of years to see the first stars and galaxies forming and compare the faintest, earliest galaxies to today's grand spirals and ellipticals, helping us understand how galaxies assemble. The infrared light will see right through and into massive clouds of dust that are opaque to visible light observatories like the Hubble telescope, where stars and planetary systems are being born. The new orbital telescope will help astronomers learn about the atmospheres of extrasolar planets, and perhaps even find the building blocks of life there. There are so many people in history who deserve to be recognised for their contributions to science. Why not change the name to match the tradition of naming a telescope after an astronomer? You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At the Frontiers of Science Forum in March 2022, Johannes Lacoutre spoke about cereal agriculture, Martina Stenzel spoke about nanomedicine with polymers, Chris Tisdale spoke about replacing compasses with templates in teaching geometry, and Ben Eggleton spoke about replacing electrons in our gadgets with light. After their talks, they joined me for the audience question and answer session. As the host, I had the privilege of asking the first questions. Johannes, you mentioned sensory science, but you didn't say what it is, so what is it? Oh, sensory science, uh, you just stop me if I'm talking too much because that's what I have been doing for for nearly 20 years and, and this became extremely exciting in 2000 when the human genome had been sequenced. Uh, so sensory science is all science related to our senses and uh, in, in my particular case I've been looking at taste, gustation, um, where taste receptors had been sequenced and identified. This is similar, but not exactly the same, to olfaction, which is the sense of smell. And, and if you're working on food, uh, needless to say, both taste and smell are, are of the essence and are, are really the key drivers for consumers. Um, and, and again, with the identification of the 
of the human genome, um, th there was a gold rush back in 2000 um, or 2001 in that everybody believed or not only believed that the pharmaceutical industry will make big strides in moving forward, identifying reasons and cures for diseases, but also, also the food industry actually had reasons to believe that we will be able and we have been able to, to identify many of the mechanisms underlying taste and olfaction. And, and then, of course, uh, you, can, you can link that back into, into what has been done um, for, for many years before the genome, which is empirical sensory science where you have panels, and I don't know if, if any of you is familiar with, with what the food industry is doing, uh, be it coffee, where, where, where 20, 50 people sit in a room and drink and zip and slurp coffee, to also maybe wine. Uh, Australian wine is, is very good, and I know there is actually a lot of wine tasting going on in this country. Uh, and you're developing a, a very clear language. You're not only talking about uh, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. You go into astringent, you go into, into uh, all kinds of sub-modalities in order to... to to, to characterize uh, your perception. The French are very good in that, and you, you will also see that actually different cultures and different languages are therefore differently good in, in doing sensory science. So again, there is a lot of French vocabulary for, for taste, uh, but, but overall, sensory science is doing exactly that, has been doing that for many years empirically until the molecular level came in with the genome, and now we can do this in a, in a way more refined way. Thank you. And I think, Martina, can we go smaller than nano, or is that impractical? <laughs> Um, it's probably impractical, yes. Um, there, there comes a point where it doesn't make sense anymore. You're limited by size of a molecule, and you're usually at an, one nanometer already. But um, um, having said that, I think we haven't fully explored sort of the nanoscale yet. Uh, most nanoparticles are around 50, 100 nanometers. And I actually want to go smaller than that and explore that uh, sort of next few years to really explore what happens when we make nanoparks that are maybe 10 nanometers and um, see if we can change um, the pharmacokinetics by doing so, yeah. But no, we're not going to have pico uh, particles <laughs> or anything, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, let's have a look. Chris. Could we round the corners to improve your, your template so that they can't even use that to hurt anybody? <laughs> I, I think, I think, are they not rounded? Are they not? They are rounded. Yeah, they are, they are rounded. Yeah, so, um, you know. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, no, obviously no tool is, is perfect, and, and if people are angry enough, they'll find a way to, you know, <laughs> cut you with paper cuts or something. Who knows? Um, but, but certainly safety is, is no joke, though, really, because um, they are, the compasses are like little weapons. I mean, I, I've, I've stabbed myself many times, and um, I'm sure you have too. In fact, in, in some of my videos, you'll see me wearing Band-Aids, my ha hairy hands with green Band-Aids, because I've, I've actually stabbed myself, you know? Um, the, other, the other interesting thing about the, the safety issue is that if I probably wouldn't give a six-year-old a compass. Would you? I probably wouldn't, right? But with a template or a ruler, let's say, it's got a chance. 
right? It's got a chance. Um, obviously, kids are still working out their, their, mo their fine motor skills, all that sort of stuff, but, but at least it's got a chance. So, so yeah. Fantastic. And what did I have for Ben? Ben, the photonic routers, how much energy could we really save over the current routers? Oh, that's a nuanced question. Um, it, let's see, how do I answer that? I mean, I made the point that routers consume more energy than the airline industry, and that is true. And um, about 10 years ago, the energy consumption in telecom was increasing rapidly. At some point, I saw a presentation from um, the equivalent of the chief scientists of Japan who had foreshadowed that if nothing was going to change, Japan's energy budget was going to be dominated by routers mm. within 10 years. And then Japan turned off its power, nuclear power stations. And it didn't happen. Unfortunately, that's because we innovated. And uh, we brought photonics um, into the router. Um, and so we've already um, addressed some of that um, issue. I guess the question, too late on Friday after a glass of wine to give you a quantitative answer, but photonics is driving bandwidth and reducing energy consumption. It has already massively reduced. Um, there's also a long way to go, um, and there are some fundamental challenges. So one way of answering to kind of distract from the actual question, but to say that, what we don't know how to do is make a photonic buffer. So routers are switches and they are buffers. Switching photonics is easy, um, but buffers are hard because slowing light down, it turns out to be a very difficult problem for fundamental reasons. And that's ongoing research. In fact, I was teaching a fourth year class today on exactly this topic. Typically, it is done at cryogenic temperatures. So there's still some great science. So if we can slow light down, if we can stop light, we can make a photonic buffer. And then we open up another two orders of magnitude bandwidth. Um, but that's probably 10 years away. All right, now it's over to the audience. So if you want to put your hand up, there should be a roving microphone. Fred's got it at the back and he'll bring it over to you. And if you just ask your question and I'll pass the microphone along. All right, I got a question for uh, Martina. Um, I was just reading on the internet there that without antibiotics, our life expectancy would be about 50, which is probably not great for a bunch of us in the room here, and I've probably got a few years left to go myself. Um, with uh, nano medicine, how much is that going to extend our lifetime once it becomes mature and ubiquitous? Oh. That's um, it's, it's very hard to put a number on these things. Um, um, I, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, it's uh, um, I never really thought of it uh, of it ex uh, expanding overall life expectancy, uh, but I thought it of it as a tool if when somebody's sick to treating them better. So yes, um, um, unless we. Um, I can't really say. No, it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't really say. But I, what one thing I can say is that nanoparticles invade different areas now. And when you say antibiotics, people use nanoparticles now, for example, to inhibit um, in infections. 
And so the nanoparticles now invade all these different areas. And don't forget, nanoparticles can also uh, are fantastic diagnostic tools. So a lot of um, uh, improvement in sort of uh, increased cancer survival we've seen over the last 10, 20 years. It's not because of better treatment, but very often of better um, diagnostic beforehand to pick up the cancer earlier. It's also very often thanks to nanoparticles that they can do that much better. Yeah, but I can't put a number on uh, living longer. Depends how good your food is. Yeah. Well, that was my second question. <laughs> Let's assume it's 20 years. Uh, Jonas, uh, can we eat if everyone's life expectancy is increased by 20 years? <laughs> well, it, it actually might be the other way around. If you eat well and if you eat right, you might extend your life expectancy or health expectancy by, by 20 years. And that's not, not even a joke. So, so there, is, there is good reason to believe that that uh, uh, right food makes makes you live longer. There's a lot of research into into health span extension and longevity, and all of these all of these molecules turn out to be in our food. So yes, red wine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, question. Um, sorry, Martin, I, was, I had to sorry. ask you this question again. <laughs> okay. Another one. Um, I, I was part of a research group at St. George Hospital where they did a similar sort of research to yourself. Instead of using nanoparticles, they used radiation called targeted alpha therapy. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the alpha particles killed the cancer cells, uh, individual one, because it's got a very short range. Mm. But they were very surprised that it actually killed the tumours as well. Um, and we couldn't work out why it was doing that. And what we discovered was it's actually destroying the vessel, the blood vessels going to the tumour. So my question is, could nanoparticles actually disrupt the blood vessels feeding the tumour? Um, yeah, well, there are some, um, there's some research not using nanoparticles, but microparticles, where, um, uh, where you put these big particles into the blood vessel leading up to the tumor, and you basically starve the tumor to death. So it's, but it's more me mechanical approach, uh, more or less, um, to do that. But nanoparticles themselves, they do something funny to tumors as well. Um, um, what we found in our research is that nanoparticles themselves, they can sometimes inhibit the movement of tumor cells. And uh, which is very important when you think of metastatic cancer. Mm -hmm. Metastatic cancer is all about non, um, a cancer cell moving somewhere else. And we found just a nanoparticle, no drug, inhibits that. So I think there's so much we don't know about um, uh, nanoparticles yet and what they can do um, uh, at the same time. But going back to your question, I think you're probably referring more um, to almost a mechanical approach of um, really blocking the, the blood access to the tumor. And in some ways, I could think about um, having nanoparticles that sort of accumulate over time and really form um, um, yeah, a, a cap to these uh, blood vessels. So there's probably a possibility to do that as well because a tumor is um, uh, has very leak, leaky um, vasculature, and so if we just used it as a way of getting all these nanoparticles in there until it sort of fills up the space, there might be an option. I just don't know how many nanoparticles we actually need. Yeah, that was happening. It caused the, the leakage of all these blood vessels by the radiation. Yeah, yeah. 
Good. Does it sort of? Yeah. yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> oh, over here. Yeah. Hello. So my question is like for Johannes regarding like growing like meat in the lab. So how can how much can kind of benefit to our footprint if we consider the cost of like the clean room, the hospitalization of everything and so yeah. on? So very good question and certainly an, an ongoing discussion um, and uh, th there was was a big controversial not uh, well a science paper it, it was published not in a scientific journal but in in the counter uh, a publication that I've never heard of before but coming coming here with a lot of Australian input into this field um, and and the, the the quick and dirty answer would be this remains to be seen, like like energy costs, uh, uh, real greenhouse gas emissions. The belief, though, is that if we get this right and if we get this done with the cell-based meat, we have way more control over the system than what we would have on a, on a cow that's running up and down the meadow, in that the cow burps and has other releases that <laughs> just go straight into the air, uh, contributing to, to greenhouse gas, right? Uh, if all of this happens inside a controlled environment, we might, if we, if we put our head to it correctly and if we get this right, we might have a chance to manage this in, in a better way. That was the first half of the Frontiers of Science Forum question and answer session. You can hear the rest of the questions next week and watch the entire event on YouTube. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.